This is the second to last uh, sermon in our series, Making Sense of Jesus. And we've been looking at how Jesus makes himself available to all of our five senses. So far, we've looked at sight, we've looked at uh, taste, we've looked at touch, and, and we've looked at things like, you know, to see Jesus, to actually see Jesus, our sight needs to be empowered by him. If we want to taste Jesus, we can taste him in the bread and wine, the sacrament of communion. If we want to touch Jesus, he actually reaches out and baptizes us. He touches us in the sacrament of baptism. And so far in this series, we focused more on how Jesus makes sense to us. But the heartbeat of this series is not just that Jesus makes sense to us, but he makes himself sensible through us. And so the last two sermons in this series on smell and on hearing are going to focus more on how Jesus makes sense through us. And this week, we're going to explore the sense of smell. And when it comes to the sense of smell, we're talking about a, a complex and actually a really neat and astounding sense. Smell is actually a stabilizing sense. Let me ask you a hypothetical. If you had to give up one of your senses, which one would you give up? Smell, right? Most people say smell. I did a BuzzFeed. It said most people say smell. What's interesting, however, is those who have lost their sense of smell report a profound loss of pleasure and purpose in their lives, a loss rivaled only by those who lose their sight. And in fact, uh, those who lose their sense of smell report higher cases of depression and more cases of suicide than those who lose sight. When people lose their smell, they're destabilized. But why? That's the question. Why does smell destabilize us in such a profound way? Smell is the sense most intimately connected with memory. Think of your own ex experience, right? A floral smell, like a strong floral musk, probably makes you remember your grandmother. Right? For me, it's certs. She was always eating certs. Uh, the smell of the sea right, might trigger a romantic date you had or the terrible time I went deep sea fishing. Uh, patchouli. Right? I don't even need to tell you that it reminds you of hippies. Uh, we can't stop it from happening. You know, it, it's automatic. Memory, it's a crucial component of our personal identity. And it's surprising but true. Smell plays a role then in stabilizing our identity. Perhaps the perfume industry gets this. You know? Chanel number five, anyone here? Chanel number five? Oh, come on. I can smell it. Someone. <laughs> Eternity by Calvin Klein, Derek. Or My Personal Cologne, Purr by Katy Perry. You know, <laughs> we want to smell good because smell evokes vivid reactions of pleasure or displeasure. If I say vomit, even the word evokes the strong displeasure in you. It's because of, the word, of our smell. If I say coffee, you're already salivating. Uh, that's because of smell. If you think about coffee advertising, they actually promote the smell over the taste. And uh, what's interesting is some people like the smell a little too much. A, a friend of mine in my community group, a member of our church, who, who he said I could name, so I will, Matt Ackerman. Uh, as a kid, he loved the smell of coffee that he would uh, hide away in the pantry and like grab a coffee bean and smell it. Like, and one day he was smelling it so hard. <laughs> It shot up his nose. And so he ran and he tell, told his dad what happened. His dad said, well, block the other side of your nose and do the opposite of what you did. Here's what we need to keep in mind about smell then. Smell plays a key role in stabilizing our identities, and it evokes vivid responses. 
And so today we're going to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. And here's the big idea I want us to explore. Christians have a fragrance, but it's not our own. And for some it smells like death, and for some it smells like life. So open your Bibles with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ... Even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest, because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? This is the Axe body spray of the New Testament, except classier, way classier. There's a hefty, hefty dose of smell. Look at it again. The fragrance of the knowledge of him. The aroma of Christ. A fragrance from death. A fragrance from life. But if we really take this passage in with our sense of smell, The scent is initially obnoxious. It's too much because it reeks of weakness. God's power is made perfect in weakness. That's the big theme in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, weakness. And we looked at this in detail last summer in our series, Weaklings, but let's dig into some of the context again briefly. In chapter 1, Paul recalls what he and his partners had gone through for the gospel, intense struggle utterly afflicted to the point of being so burdened beyond their strength that they thought they were going to die. They were despairing of life itself. Ministry in Asia had been beyond hard for Paul, but he writes in chapter 1, verse 9, this was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. After talking about physical frailty and lack, Paul moves on to relational weakness. He recalls that there's been conflict between him and the Corinthian church, and he he recounts a painful visit, and he refers to a letter that we don't have, where he wrote out of much affliction and anguish of heart with many tears. And in our passage today, uh, chapter 2 and verse 12, Paul recalls how he had an open door for ministry in Troas. Paul's all about starting new churches in cities. He's traveling all over the world doing this. This is his passion. This is his calling. And he had a wide open opportunity for the advancement of the gospel. But because of the anxiety that he had for the well-being of the church in Corinth, he left. He left this wide open opportunity to go to Macedonia, to meet up with Titus, to hear a report of how the Corinthians are doing. You see, it's only the second chapter of this letter, and it's clear that Paul knows weakness through and through. Frailty of body, disorder of relationships, anxiety of mind. It's strange then, isn't it? That Paul proceeds to say in verse 14, but thanks be to God. All that Paul's described, it's not a smell that we like. What does he have to be thankful for? The odor of weakness, you know, Struggle, hardship, relational strife. These are not the sort of things we tend to give thanks to God for. We're the sort of people that thanks God for parking spots. Uh, And yet, Paul's thankfulness gets even more curious. Look at verse 14 as a whole. But thanks be to God, who in Christ 
always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Paul, he's being led in a triumphal procession. And this sounds sort of like a parade. It'd be more accurate to imagine a parade with a dark ending. In the turn of the 20th century, San Francisco hosted P.T. Barnum's The Greatest Show on Earth. Have any of you ever done like a history of circuses? All right, I'm really nerdy. And uh, the circus tour was making its way to San Francisco, and their big feature was Jumbo the Elephant. I just love the way old-time newspapers describe this beast. The mighty lord of all beasts, the largest living quadruped on Earth, a towering monster, a historic mammoth. And P.T. Barnum and crew arrived in San Francisco, and they set up the circus on the edge of the city, but they thought the best way to get everyone to the circus was to have a parade leading to the circus, a procession. And so they did. P.T. Barton himself led the parade, followed by clowns, which would be terrifying, and other entertainers, and whatnot. And all these people are following him. But lastly, Jumbo processed in all his glory. And he was doing great. Jumbo, you know, shaking his elephant trunk. People were laughing and clapping. But then a car backfired. And Jumbo was frightened, and he wasn't leashed. And so he started running frantically down Market Street, destroying shops and property all the way to the circus. People were screaming. Children were traumatized. And there's just this trail of carnage leading to the circus. As a result, and I'm not kidding, San Francisco instituted this law, which remains to the day. Elephants may not walk down Market Street unless they are on a leash. (laughs) This is a real law, people. I made the backstory up. Jumbo never did that. He was a good elephant, but this is a law in San Francisco. And so I told this little fable because (laughs) I knew I was taking a risk, but I told this little fable because we need to envision a parade with a dark ending. God leads Paul in a triumphal procession. He leads Paul in a triumphal procession. Paul is borrowing language from the Roman Empire. And when Rome conquered cities, the army would return in a triumphal procession. It was a spectacle. The whole city turned out to see and celebrate the victory of Caesar. The parade was led by the winning general, followed by winning soldiers and chariots, then became behind the The soldiers came, the booty, uh, the spoils of war, and so far so good, but then it took a turn for the dark. Lastly came what was known as the abject misery, the abject misery. The defeated enemies, leaders and warriors in shackles, the captives now enslaved, injured, wounded, humiliated, most of them on their way to being executed. And the point of the triumphal victory was not just to celebrate Rome's victory, but to celebrate the total and complete victory, which included the defeat and humiliation of Rome's enemies and those who resisted the expansion of the empire. This is why what Paul says in verse 14 is so strange and curious. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Jesus leads us in a triumphal procession. This much we like. Jesus is at the head of the march. He's the victorious one. And Paul emphasizes the totality of this too. Christ always leads in triumphal procession. Nothing, absolutely nothing can stop him or overcome him or compete with his victory over sin, evil, suffering, and death. It's a done deal. Jesus has won. He's leading us to his kingdom and the new heavens and the new earth 
And Jesus, he's the one leading us always. But it's got a smell. He spreads his fragrance, the knowledge of him through us. And the question is, is it a good or bad smell? Is it a good or bad smell? The abject misery in the triumphal procession, they were compelled to strew incense as they walked. And so this distinct smell accompanied their march, a smell associated with their defeat. This would, remind, this would be embedded in every citizen's mind. This is what shame and misery and failure and weakness smells like. This is the smell of defeat heading toward death. They smell that incense, and they would think of the abject misery in the triumphal procession. What's Paul saying then in drawing this comparison? We are Christ's abject misery. We are the defeated ones. We smell like weakness. And to this, to this, Paul says, thanks be to God. What? Like, how can we celebrate being this smell, the smell of defeat? Because we don't smell like Rome's defeat. We smell like the fragrance of Christ, and there's a huge difference between the two. The abject misery who march in Rome's procession, they're marching to their humiliation and execution. Their weakness is leading to utter defeat and death. But when we march behind Christ, we're being led to transformation and glory. As he leads, our weakness isn't displayed to shame us, but leads us to victory and life. Because it's through weakness that Jesus came into the world, was crucified, and saved the world. His weakness is stronger than the greatest strength of the world. So yes, Jesus always leads us. But we don't march in victorious power like generals. But neither do we march behind Christ in our shame. We're led behind him in weakness and frailty, but our weakness is a part of his procession to show the totality of his victory. Because not even our frailty or disorder stands in the way of Jesus bringing us to him and using, him, using us for his purposes. We march behind him then as ones being saved. God's victory is so complete, so totally and entirely complete that God works his glory and his power even through our weaknesses. And it's totally freeing. We don't have to be strong. Jesus is our strength and he is enough. And as Jesus leads us, we become the fragrance of the knowledge of him. Being captive to Jesus means his grace overthrows our weakness and overflows into others. And so the smell of this passage is initially obnoxious. It's an odor that has, you know, a, a stench of weakness. But as we understand this passage, we realize it's the sweet, sweet smell of grace. And as a result, Christians have a particular smell. You have a particular smell. The person sitting beside you can probably notice it. Don't worry, they probably can't. But Christians have a particular smell. I've never, I've never really thought about this before. But it's not our own. It's the fragrance of Christ. Look at verse 15. For we are the aroma of Christ to God. We are the aroma of Christ to God. As Christ leads us, he spreads his fragrance through us because we're the aroma of Christ to God. He has so completely saved us and healed us and renews us to the point 
that we are his aroma to God the Father. Think about that. When God smells us, he doesn't smell abject misery. When God smells us, he smells Christ. He doesn't smell our stench. He doesn't smell our embarrassments. He doesn't smell our failures and our sins. He smells the beautiful and pleasing aroma of his son, his beloved son. This is the fragrance, fragrance we wear, the fragrance of Christ. And it's not subtle. It can't be subtle because he's spreading the smell of his victory to the world through us. And so when other people smell us, if they get close enough, they smell the aroma of Christ. They smell the knowledge of him. Because the aroma of Christ evokes a vivid response. A few years ago, I switched hair products, which I know is an important detail. Uh, believe it or not, this part is not natural. A lot of work goes into this, this part. And uh, you know this, like your pastor is like one tattoo away from having a reality television show. Uh, at least that's what the TLC network told me. But... Uh, this takes effort, and uh, I switched from Enjoy Wax, which was odorless, to a product called 85 Carats by Lock, Stock, and Barrel. Neither of these products were willing to pay me for this endorsement, and uh, when I came home from the barber, like the moment I opened the door, Julia looked at me and goes, what is that smell? What is that smell? Have you been hanging out with a bunch of old men smoking cigars? I can't tell if you smell like a cigar or an old man, but it's gross. But when I wear my cologne, Purr, by Katy Perry, <laughs> actually, it's Allure by Chanel. Julia says, what are you wearing? It's alluring. It's very nice. <laughs> Smells. They evoke reactions of strong displeasure or pleasure. Right? And like any scent, the aroma of Christ evokes displeasure or pleasure. Look at verses 15 and 16 together. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved, and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. As people smell the aroma of Christ through us, his fragrance. To one, it's a fragrance of death. To another, it's a fragrance of life. To one, it's like cyanide. To another, it's like a fresh breath of oxygen. But why is it such a vivid and dividing response? A friend of a friend um, nearly died of cancer at the age of 27. He, he survived. Um, and as my friend was telling me about this, he was recalling something striking about what his friend told him. The amount of chemotherapy that he had received apparently changed his body odor. It changed his body odor. He began to smell like a different person. But it deeply disturbed him. It caused feelings of anxiety. He lost sleep. He felt like someone else was inhabiting his body. Now, over time, he eventually adjusted to this new smell, but it, would, it took a lot longer than you would expect. You see, smell is a stabilizing force, and a change of smell, a change of personal odor, can totally destabilize us because smell plays a role in the formation of our memories and the formation of our identities then. And suddenly, this smell... This man could, was aware of his own smell, but it smelled peculiar. It smelled like someone else. It destabilized him because he didn't feel like himself anymore. The aroma of Christ destabilizes us. Well, how so? Well, when it's smelt among those who are perishing, it leads to vivid displeasure because they're so destabilized. First, 
It's because Jesus' scent allows us to smell our own for the first time. We smell ourselves in a new way, and it smells like death. In light of who Jesus is, we sense our frailty, our finite time, our decaying bodies, our limits. We smell ourselves for who we are. We have an end. There is a countdown on our lives. And it's not an aroma we want to smell, and the aroma of Christ exposes it. Because his aroma is life, and our aroma is death. Secondly, the aroma of Christ destabilizes us uh, because it helps us smell the world afresh as well. We live in a perishing world, a world that will end, a world plagued with injustice and suffering. And if there is no God, there will no, be no justice ultimately because everyone who's been killed in a genocide will never see justice. People who have been conscripted as child soldiers will never see justice. People who have spent their lives working on the streets will never see justice if there is no God. Their deaths will be the end. And we smell that hopelessness without God. It's a perishing world, and we don't like the smell because when we smell it, it's old and it's decaying and it's wrought with injustice. But when we smell Christ, he's new and he's bringing new creation. But I think mostly the aroma of Christ destabilizes us because it comes through people who are weak. It smells like what this world calls defeat. It smells like inefficiency and insufficiency and failure. Uh, It smells like the worst thing possible to us because we want to deny all of these things in our lives. We want to live the ideal life, the perfect life with the right amount of vacations, the right amount of income, the right amount of friends, the right amount of alone time. We don't want weakness. We want productivity and strength and perfectly parted hair. So for some, when they smell Christ, the smell evokes vivid displeasure because they smell themselves afresh for a new time. They smell the world afresh. They smell others and their weakness, and they don't like it, and they don't want it, and so they reject it, and they stay in a perishing world that is leading from death to death. But what about the aroma of Christ for those who are being saved? They're destabilized as well, but in an entirely different way. It leads to vivid pleasure. Our aroma is replaced by Jesus and our identity changes and a new smell rewrites all of our memories. Look at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. Paul writes this. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. First, the aroma of Christ smells like love. Jesus loves us. A pastor I knew once, uh, not once, he said this all the time, God is crazy about you. God is crazy about you. When we smell the aroma of Christ for those who are being saved, it smells like profound love. It smells like the scent of of a lover. It's pleasing and fulfilling, and the smelling of a lover in their presence or their sweater, it brings us comfort and joy and delight. And our odorous shortcomings and failures and sins, whether deliberate or intentional, are replaced by the aroma of Christ and his love for us. 
So even when we're weak, even when we're sinners, even when we wanted nothing to do with God, he loved us and he came for us and he gave himself for us. That's the sort of love contained in the aroma of Christ. It's a love that totally embraces us and wraps itself around us and we become beloved children. The aroma of Christ also smells like grace. The Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, puts it this way. Grace is the most beautiful word in the language of God. It means love given freely without expectation of return. Grace is a love that knows no bounds, no limits. It was a love that was willing to walk into a perishing world and to die for us. The aroma of Christ smells like Christ generously giving himself for us. Not when we ask for it, but when we needed it most. Not because it assures him that we'll love him in return, but because he first loved us. And the aroma of Christ is his death on the cross, but his death is about life. And his sacrifice on the cross is a fragrant offering to God. It's a pleasing aroma to God. It's an acceptable offering to God. And as a result, when we believe in Jesus, when we say, all I know of me to all I know of Jesus, when we trust in him, the aroma of Christ flows through us to God and we become acceptable before God. That's why we're beloved children. He smells Christ through us. That is grace. It's not us. It's Jesus through us. God smells us and no longer smells our putrid bodies gangrened by sin. No, he smells the grace and love bestowed on us by his own son and it pleases him. The aroma of Christ, it smells like life. That's why it's a fresh dose of oxygen. His his fragrance is life to life because he's overcome death. He's overcome a perishing world. He's overcome a hopeless world. He's overcome a world wrought with injustice and he smells like something more. He smells like something enduring. He smells like something true. Jesus leads us to life. He leads us to eternal life. He leads us to abundant life. And there's only more and more and more of it to be found because his life has no end and his kingdom will have no end. If we were a charismatic church, I'd be getting an amen right now. I get a laugh. Amen? There's still more sermon. So, if the aroma of Christ is displeasure for some and pleasure for others, is it just a matter of preference? Is this just total relativism? Is it a matter of, you know, like, whatever is true for you is true for you. Whatever is true for me is true for me. I don't like the smell. You like the smell. Potato, potato. No, the difference in how people respond is a matter of pride or humility. You see, for those who don't like the smell, it exposes detriments, right? It exposes faults, and they don't like it. Because you might, a few things happen. You might feel guilt. Guilt is feeling bad about things you've done. Or you might feel its cousin shame. Shame is feeling bad about who you are. Something is wrong with you. But the way we compensate for shame is actually with pride. So deep down, you get this aroma. You see your shortcomings. You feel like something is wrong with you. But you make up for it by building a persona of self-sufficiency, a pick-me-up-by-my-bootstraps and lead myself forward into a better future mentality. And you, you smell the aroma of Christ. You feel guilt or shame. 
But your pride kicks in and you say, I don't need you. And it's pride because in the presence of a greater aroma than your own, rather than focus on him, you focus on yourself. You only care about your own aroma and improving it. You say, I don't need you. I'm enough on my own. But the other response is humility. Humility isn't thinking less about yourself. It's or sorry, it's not thinking less of yourself in a negative sense, like that you're a bad person. Humility is thinking less, I'm tired, let me try again. <laughs> Babies. Or is it my manuscript? No, that's right. Humility isn't thinking less about yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. That makes sense, right? You're welcome. Uh, rather than focus solely on your own smell or your own shortcomings or your guilt or your shame, you focus on Christ and his aroma and you're overwhelmed by his love and his grace. A love and grace that leads you forward from that place. You see, as you can see in these responses, neither are relative or subjective. One refuses the aroma, the other accepts it. One refuses the knowledge of God, the other accepts it. One refuses Jesus, the other accepts him. Finally, there's one last matter for us to consider as Paul reflects on these beautiful truths. He asks, who is sufficient for these things? No one. Not us. How could we be? At least no one is sufficient on their own. We're too weak, but Christ is our strength. And what's beautiful about this passage is it's Jesus who leads us. It's Christ who spreads his aroma through us. The emphasis lands on his action, not ours. And this is a totally different vision of evangelism and mission. It's his work through us. The grace of God isn't meant to stop with you and me. But God doesn't say, you got to do it. Try harder and harder still. He says, you are mine I am leading you, I'm doing the work, I'm spreading the knowledge of myself through you, and you are the aroma of Christ to me. And there's great relief here, there's great relief. First, the pressure is off. The pressure is off. You don't have to perform. You don't have to have all the right answers. God does the work through you, and he'll always be with you. And second, the relief is that your weaknesses and your frailties don't disqualify you from being used by God. It's precisely the opposite. God's power and victory is displayed and demonstrated in your weaknesses and inability. But what we have to recognize is that Jesus leads us through this world and into the next. Our weaknesses are meant to be on display, not hidden. We're meant to boast in our weaknesses so that much is made of God and little is made of us. Which means this, when God's grace truly takes root in your life, you can't cover his aroma up. You can't cover up your shortcomings and foibles. You can't cover up when you fall short or embarrass yourself or when you feel too weak to go on and others notice because it won't discredit the gospel. In fact, it affirms the gospel and how Christ's victory is for the weak. And it gives you freedom, profound freedom, that when you see shame in others or mistakes and brokenness in others, 
You don't withdraw. You don't look away, but you actually draw near with love and grace because the aroma of Christ changes the way you smell failure and weakness in others. And so you draw near with love, grace, patience, and humility. As the love of Christ takes a hold of us, as his aroma envelops us, we don't mind our position in the triumphal entry. We don't mind being the last. We don't mind being the abject misery because we know that no matter how far we have fallen, no matter how weak we may be, Jesus is victorious. He leads us and he carries us and he will bring us into victory and eternal life. So Christians have a fragrance, but it's not our own. And for some, it smells like death and for some, it smells like life. No matter what, Jesus will spread his fragrance, the knowledge of him through us.